Jordan, I've got I've got a bit of a bone to pick here. With me? Not with you, no, just, just something that's been on my mind over the last couple of days, something kind of bothering me. What is it? Well, as you know, um, there's wildfires raging all across Canada right now. It was really affecting Alberta for a couple weeks. Uh, it's been affecting the East Coast, and now right here in, where I live in Quebec, there's massive wildfires going on. You know, it's a really scary time, and I don't know why this is, but I'm seeing all kinds of Americans weighing in on this, talking about the wildfires. <laughs> And they don't live here. They don't live here, Jordan. So oh. I don't see what the... I thought the rule was... This has been explained carefully to me many times. I thought the rule was <laughs> you have to live in the place where the thing is going on. And then you can comment on it. And I see a number sure. of people not abiding by this. It's kind of frustrating. <laughs> so sorry, this is happening to you. Yeah, this is... Sorry. So you're telling <laughs> yeah. me... That the massive toxic cloud coming from Canada is hovering over America and affecting things there. Oh, that's interesting. I wonder if there's some kind of an analogy. <laughs> I wonder if there's some kind of an analogy that we could use here. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry. Well, look who's on his high horse today. <laughs> I should, you know, I sh probably shouldn't be using this very serious, devastating environmental crisis to... Uh, make a point about petty Twitter grievances uh, and beefs, but you know, I'm a petty guy. I guess I don't know. I just couldn't couldn't resist. Couldn't resist. You know how satisfied when you made that connection in your head. When was it, and how satisfied were you? <laughs> it was probably. I think it was sometime yesterday. Like when it was when all the footage from New York was coming in with like all the the apocalyptic yellow skies and the wood smoke covering the whole city i was kind of like okay i've got that grinch face and the fingers are together and <laughs> i was really okay i'm gonna let them have it i'm gonna put the this, system on trial my later. time to shine yeah oh you got him uh, everyone's on notice now <laughs> everyone's on notice it was no it's uh it was bad uh, though horrifying i know yeah i just got back to dc last night and I had been in Texas the past several days. And on in the Uber ride back to my apartment, you could see it. You could see this like haze over the city. And granted, DC didn't get it nearly as bad as New York or, you know, northern northeastern parts of the US. But still, like really terrible. You're in Quebec. What is it like? How how are you? How are you, how's your family feeling? How's everyone's throats? I hear it's hard to breathe up there. Well, we're doing all right, honestly. Like, weirdly enough, uh, like at the first couple of days, we definitely did have the kind of haze here and you could smell the smoke and uh, we were definitely being affected by it. But over the last two days or so, when you look at like the climate map showing like where the smoke is going, it like curls totally around Montreal where I'm at. Even though I'm in Quebec, the the cloud is like being blown away from the city and curling around. I'm in the nice, like breathable green zone, and then it's everyone on the eastern seaboard <laughs> in New York City and D.C. and and now Pennsylvania that's getting really the huge impact of it. You know, it's been it's been not great here, but it's nowhere near as bad currently. 
in Montreal as it is like in some places in the US. Although I'm not going to like do an end zone dance about it. It's literally just a matter of the wind changing at any moment and then it could come right back over me. But in all honesty, it has not been that bad over the last couple of days. It's been significantly worse in New York and a lot of other places in the US. Yeah, yeah. I have a buddy in Toronto and he said the past couple of days it's been really brutal on his throat. Being outside for 10, 15 minutes felt like he just smoked a couple of cigarettes, which is wild. Um, how did this start? This is just, a, this is a wildfire, right? Yeah. Yeah. It's, I mean, there, like I said, there's been wildfires across Canada uh, for the last couple of weeks. You know, it's it, a little unclear about how these things start. You know, that's it's how wildfires always start. There's uh, you know, lightning hitting dry areas. There's humans camping and not being careful with fires or cigarettes or whatever like we don't we don't know i mean that's the whole thing that becomes very confusing for people right when you talk about climate change uh and you talk about the wildfire season in the way that in canada for example right now uh we're like a thousand percent more land being burned by wildfire season than it has ever happened before this time of year like in early june like by several orders of magnitude um and you know the reason that's happening, we like they can start however fires normally start in forests, which is like not a new phenomenon. But because of the hot and dry climate, the less rain, there's these environmental factors that are exacerbated by climate change that are making the fires way easier to start and to spread way faster and to get out of control much quicker. So, total little unclear about how these things are starting. There's a lot of spe- rampant speculation about that right now. Um, but the reason that it's spreading and the reason that it's becoming is so dangerous so quickly is because of like, all these environmental factors that are being exacerbated by the changing uh, climate. And that's one of the many frustrating things about people's reactions to it that we're, we'll go through a few of them, but people trying to act like this has nothing to do with climate change and summarily dismissing it as arson. Like you say, it's a you know, very difficult and in some cases, impossible to know how these start. But the effects of climate change make these worse. And you're seeing it not yeah. just in the U.S., not just in the Northeast, not just, you know, smoke over New York. You're seeing it on the West Coast. We did an episode a couple of years ago uh, about the wildfires in Australia. You're seeing this all yeah. over the planet. And as we so often talked about, these are the effects and these are the manifestations of climate change. It's not just, oh, the climate's changing. Now a fire has spontaneously broken out. It is making these things worse and more frequent. And that's the point when people are talking about the dangers of climate change. It's things like this, but a lot of skeptics and cynics and people who maybe even know deep down the climate is changing, but because of a partisan bent, can't accept or admit that tried to dismiss this over the past couple of days just as arson or in some cases not a big deal at all yeah the reaction you know as usual with any of these kinds of situations from conservative media has been pretty incredible and like you said it 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 spans that whole spectrum of this is not a big deal it's nothing to worry about there's always fires actually wood fire smoke is good for you and it's not bad whatsoever particulate matter is just like a george soros uh uh, fantasy, uh, conspiracy theory. Uh, it actually smells kind of nice or yeah, or it is bad and it's being started by uh, arsonists. It's just like really going across the spectrum of, uh, of conservative 
uh, conspiracy and denialism. Yeah. There was a guy who I know you featured on your Twitch stream and I've seen clips shared around. There's a guy who was on Fox News last night talking about it, saying, oh, it's no big deal. There are zero health consequences from people inhaling all of this wildfire smoke in cities like New York. And just a tiny amount of digging revealed that this guy previously worked in the coal industry and now works for or runs a you know a fancy named think tank on the right whose ultimate goal is to spin the conversation on climate change deny human involvement and contribution on behalf of the oil gas and coal industries and it's just it's it's frustrating as we see the effects in real time you're seeing horrific like post apocalyptic scenes at a, in major cities like we saw in San Francisco a couple of years ago we, I mean, really, we're seeing on the West Coast every year at this point now, yeah. uh, like we saw in Australia a couple of years ago. And now this week in New York, there are there's an audience apparently for for climate science denialism. Yeah. And like it's not just people like this that work for these kinds of like firms or that kind of are, are whose job it is to act as in this official capacity to show up on the media and basically, yeah, deny these things. Uh, ultimately, with the with the goal of rolling back regulations and and legislation that's put into effect to kind of combat this problem, but I mean it's like the whole like the big part of the conservative media apparatus. You know, it's not just this one guy or whatever. Like we've talked about before, we talked about this with Andrew Lawrence a couple of weeks ago. Like the Daily Wire and all these conservative media influencers, they're basically like part of the PR wing of like the oil and gas industry and the fracking industry. And it's like there, there's this gigantic media apparatus that's been put into place, this infrastructure that's been put into place, you know, from Fox News on the mainstream, going down to Newsmax, going into Daily Wire, and then funneling into this kind of like online conspiracy world. Who is they, who, that's what their whole purpose is, is to obfuscate these things, to convince people that man-made climate change is just not even happening at all. Or these major consequences that we're seeing, like the wildfires, are actually the, not that big of a deal. I mean, it's it's so sinister. And when you start to dig into some of the people that are like, believe this stuff, you see how much it's like worked on them. And you see there's this there's all these people online that have now acted basically as unpaid acolytes of the oil and gas industry to go in and spread these kinds of ideas and conspiracy <laughs> theories. It's extremely sinister. And like, it's depressing because like you really start to get the idea, you know, as much as this has been a controversial issue, as much as people have been convinced that this is not a real thing, surely when they start seeing, physically seeing the consequences of it, when they open their door or their window and just seeing the changes that are happening, surely then maybe they'll start to ask some questions. They'll start to wonder if maybe they've been led astray or lied to. And really that is not what's going on. These same people are just doubling and tripling down. They're still denying it, even when it's right there in their face. It's extremely uh, depressing, actually, to pay attention to it. Yeah, I was just going to say, it it doesn't even seem like people being directly affected by this is going to make them change. And maybe it's because, unlike some issues, you know, marriage equality, acceptance of um, same-sex marriage, for a lot of Republicans, it was someone in their family actually coming out that made them change on gun violence in many cases, definitely not all, because there are, you know, in, in some mass shootings, victims, families who turn around and become like outspoken Second Amendment people. 
so it's definitely not all of them. But you know, you see, you do see a lot of people when it's impacting them, they become more involved. On this, I don't, I don't, I don't think it's going to be the same pattern because the people who are going to be impacted directly first are less affluent, uh, more likely to be a person of color or black. By the time it reaches people who are wealthy, affluent, white, uh, conservative, for the most part, it's going to be you know too late. So I, I, I just, what's a little smoke if they can escape it? What's a little like mild inconvenience from a wildfire if they can just jet set somewhere else to one of their other homes? It's it's an escapable problem for the wealthy, whereas you know gun violence isn't. Like that person is that person in your life is just now dead, and. I don't know what it's going to take. Even then, though, look no further than COVID and what we've seen with that, where you have people who you would think when their own family members or they themselves start getting this illness and getting severe health consequences from it or even being hospitalized, intubated or even fucking dying from it. And it just made them like all the double and triple down on the denial that it was even an issue in the first place. You had these incredibly bizarre scenes of people like trying to take their loved ones away from the hospital because they've convinced themselves that like the nurses or the doctors are somehow responsible for it. Like the cognitive dissonance has just gotten so extreme that even when people are being personally affected by this with people they love or they themselves, they still don't believe it. In fact, they continue to like uh, be as fervent as ever in their denial that it's an, an issue at all. Do you remember when Herman Cain died from COVID and his Twitter yes. account was still yeah. auto posting stuff, including <laughs> like yeah. COVID skepticism and posts questioning COVID's mortality rate? Like, you're dead, sir. Pretty on the nose. <laughs> yeah, exactly. You, you died from this. <laughs> and just like they all didn't, they all don't care. It's just it, because it, it, acknowledging that it was dangerous would force them to reconsider at that time one of the largest planks in their partisan platform which was we need to reopen it's not a big deal it's it's somehow a bioweapon from china and also not a big deal and the most yeah. important thing we can do right now is get businesses booming again and they wanted to die crushed in those gears of of this capitalist machine to enrich corporation CEOs, the shareholders, just to get Applebee's back open. And they were fine being a human sacrifice uh, on that blood altar. Yeah, it's it's pretty grim stuff, I got to say. I know, and there's some real crossover with that. It's like the same thing with like this wildfire thing. Like you get, you have like theories ranging from, or it's simultaneously. It's not even like people can hold these two thoughts in their mind at the same time. Like it's simultaneously dangerous and being started by climate activists in order to take away their rights and freedoms. And it's actually just a little wildfire smoke. It smells nice. It's a nice mesquite smell. It's a nice calming aura or whatever that guy on Newsmax was saying about New York City. <laughs> They're holding these ideas in their mind at the same time. You know, it's both dangerous and something that's being created by our and our perceived enemies. And it's simultaneously not even not a big deal at all. Um, I was really diving into like the really wacky kind of conspiracy theory stuff about this on TikTok, um, especially with these kind of like ex extreme reactionaries here in Canada. And it's pretty fascinating digging into like what they think is going on, which is if I can or if I can get the get it right, it's it's something like so it's it's Justin Trudeau working with the like World Economic Forum 
and they're starting the fires and this is all being used as a as a distraction basically or as a a way to get people back wearing masks again because it's really important that to the government that everyone wears masks for some reason we don't know why exactly but it's that's what they want they want to go into climate lockdowns because people want when people say like you know it's dangerous to go outside because of the smoke or a potential harm you might have from wildfires you should stay inside your house well no no that's a climate lockdown that's what the that's what the globalists want and ultimately what they want they don't want people living in these rural areas no no they want to they want to shepherd people into these 15 minute cities they want to put people in these 15 minute cities where and you if you like if you better be sitting down right now cuz this is really terrifying stuff one of these really scary 15 okay. minute cities where you live somewhere and there's a bunch of green spaces around you and decent transit and all your amenities and grocery stores and your doctor is all like near you so you don't have to spend your entire life driving in your car stuck in traffic. Well, this is actually this like devious mm-hmm. George Soros World Economic Forum plot that's put into place that's basically like a concentration camp. It's basically Auschwitz when you live in a city with a bunch of parks and infrastructure and grocery stores near where you live. This is the thing that these people have really latched on to. Uh, in the sort of post-COVID era, because all these people were complaining so much about the lockdowns and claiming that that was part of some kind of plot. And then when all the lockdowns were totally lifted and all the mandates that they were complaining about were lifted, the mask mandates, the vaccine mandates, and they won and they got everything that they wanted. And we all just moved on and we opened up all the Applebee's and you can go and get a, a nice gigantic Bud Light anytime you want. Well, not Bud Light anymore, obviously, because they're woke, part of the woke mind virus or whatever. But they got everything they wanted, you know, and but that wasn't enough because they still have to feel this constant sense of persecution. So this is what they've all moved on to now. We're being moved into these 15 minute cities where we're going to have all our movement tracked and we're going to have to we're going to have to appeal to the commandant to get a pass to move into zone B to see our families or whatever. This is what these people are freaking out about. And they think that these wildfires are a big the new big puzzle piece, (laughs) the new big puzzle piece to the 15 minute city uh, conspiracy. It's really something else to dig into uh, this stuff. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> well, I'm in just off that elevator pitch. I'm in. Yeah. You've, you've got me. So sign me up, whatever I need to do, whatever I need to buy or whoever I need to subscribe to, to learn the truth and stay plugged in. Just tell me where to send my money. That seems to be how all of these things work anymore. Just exactly. let me know. I'm in. I like it. Yeah. Well, I've been trying to go on TikTok myself and try and change people's hearts and minds and talk about these things. But would you believe that they're not really receptive to some of my ideas about this? And they, in fact, think that I'm one of the Trudeau socialist, globalist, uh, authoritarian, jackbooted thugs or whatever it is. I don't know. Which I am. I mean, that's true. I believe it. They did kind of nail me on that one. Maybe it's the medium. It could be Perhaps. it could be how you're doing it. Have you have you tried doing it while dancing and like pointing at text that appears on screen? That might be I you need to be in a truck it. with sunglasses, sometimes not wearing a shirt. That seems well, to be what really gets the traction on there. But I gotta keep working on this to infiltrate. Well <laughs> I think you can pull it off. Yeah. Uh in other news, did you hear? Ladies and gentlemen, we got him. We got him again. Yeah. We got him the twice. The second time this year, <laughs> Trump has been indicted. Now, this time uh, in Miami for his 
his possession and handling of classified documents. Rob, how long until Trump is behind bars? <laughs> there's going to be a there's going to be a <laughs> Cheeto in a jail cell. Um, you know, I, I just can't. I'm not going to get ever excited about this stuff because we just know that. I really still don't think anything is going to lead to anything. Like it, I will, I will be moved by one of these stories when there's actual legal repercussions for any of this stuff. Not that I think like, this classified document stuff is really that big of a deal. I see all these people getting all up in arms. These kind of liberals online, but how dare you have these classified documents? Like I don't, I don't care about class Trump having classified documents or what he was doing with them. Probably thrown around the nuclear codes at Mar-a-Lago, trying to impress like random jet ski dealers from Sarasota or whatever. Um, <laughs> but you know, it's like, it, it, it's, they want this f- sort of uh, surface level uh, facade that they can like talk about how they're beginning all these legal, legal repercussions and he's going to have all these consequences. But ultimately, like if they don't actually follow through on anything as the, which seems to always be the case, if they don't actually stop him from running for president, then it doesn't really matter, you know, and he's just going to still run. He's going to be the favorite until he's legally not allowed to run. And then once he's actually the president, like it's very unclear if, or if that happens when, and if he does get to that point, uh, it's going to be probably next to impossible to actually uh, enact any kind of real consequences for any of this stuff, any of the corruption or the rampant criminality that was going on. So can't, can't help but feel a little lackluster about this this yet another story about the walls closing in and the orange man and the orange jumpsuit or whatever it is yeah i i think it's funny he's he's obviously not having a great time he's been posting truths which is what they call them on truth social about how he's been indicted in the past couple days he's been lashing out uh after it was made clear to him i guess the other day that this was happening I'm just along for the ride. I'm going to watch it. I'm going to enjoy it, but I'm not going to get my hopes up. And it's not just him. He's not unique in being a powerful and or wealthy person who is somehow beyond reproach. Like this is just the whole system is like this. It's a two tiered justice system. Yeah. You know, if, if some lowly staffer did this, they'd be, you know, (laughs) they'd be in jail. I mean, we see that reality winner is in jail. For leaking classified documents. Yeah. Or you know, a mishand- yeah. mishandling of classified documents if you are powerless. Yeah. Well, Snowden's not in jail, but definitely they yeah. want him to be. They would love for him to be. Yeah. But exactly. if you're powerful, wealthy. Oh, God. Yeah. So it's it, it. you see it. You see it in how they've responded to things like leaks, ultimately mishandling of classified documents. They want to, you know, if they want to claim it's espionage, let them. It's not because they were doing both of them were doing it. Uh, in, in a public service. Chelsea Manning, same thing. I don't care who the recipient was. I don't care if you allegedly think another country or an adversary benefited from the information. They put this information in the public light. Good good on them. Outlets won Pulitzers. Multiple outlets won Pulitzers off of the Snowden reporting. Those reporters are fine and they're, you know, they're moving on. But the guy who did it, he's, he's the one that is uh, a traitor. I don't buy yeah. it. And if you really want to throw the book at these people, do the same with a powerless or, or a powerful person. Until then, I'm not going to get my hopes up that this is somehow going to, you know, end him, end his political career, end his political aspirations. I I hope it does, but I don't really have high hopes. Well, it just seems like the people that are making these decisions 
are still so wedded to these kinds of norms and respecting of these institutions that even if they have evidence that Trump did engage in criminal behavior, they still see it as almost like too uncouth to actually enact real consequences for someone who they deem a political enemy. That's like, oh, that's only what happens in these banana republics, these authoritarian countries or whatever. Um, even though really what happens is the kind of rampant corruption that goes on in the U.S. government is just totally normalized, which Trump is a part of, but which a lot of people in the U.S. government are also significantly a part of as well. So I think that's part of it also. They don't want to open the door to really prosecute the real corruption that was going on because it's certainly not just Donald Trump that's got his finger in the pie there, whatever the analogy you want to make. Um, there's a whole lot of people on both sides of the aisle in the U.S. government that are engaging in that kind of uh, – open corruption. And if they really went after that, it would not just be Donald Trump that would be caught in the crossfire of it. Right, right. Well, you know, both of these stories that we've talked about, the the opportunists in DC who are trying to spin the conversation around climate change to, you know, the, the craziness and bonanza of the Trump world and people uh, who have built careers for themselves in this resistance to Trump benefiting from that. All of those, including some really funny character arcs, can be found in Ben Terrace's new book, The Big Break, The Gamblers, Party Animals, and True Believers Trying to Win in Washington While America Loses Its Mind. I sat down with Ben, and uh, we've got a conversation for you coming up uh, between him and I, or him and me, and I just finished this book today, and let me tell you, I fucking loved it. It takes you through the past couple years for people like Matt Schlapp, you know, the CPAC guy, Sean McElwee, the abolish ice turned, hey, let's not talk about defunding the police guy. Yeah. Uh, and then some people who you may not know, <laughs> Leah Hunt Hendricks, who is a progressive funder power player who is also the granddaughter of formerly the richest person on the planet and an oil tycoon, uh, Robert Stry uh, Strick, who I had never heard of, but ended up being one of the most uh, successful lobbyists during the Trump years. And he guys kind of faked it until he made it. Some really funny stories in this book. And Ben and I sat down to talk about it. Uh, I forgot. To, it was interesting to hear from his perspective about some of these people he spent the past couple of years with. Uh, I'm really, really looking forward to, to people hearing this conversation. It was great. Cool. Uh, I'm really looking forward to hearing it as well, actually. But before we do that, just want to remind people our most recent premium episode that came out earlier this week with Ken Klippenstein, who, as a reminder, is still banned from the show. We just had to make a, an exception. He can't keep getting away <laughs> with this. The, the, he's just out of control. <laughs> About the... The presidential campaigns of RFK Jr. and Cornell West and the role that third parties or independent candidates can play as spoilers potentially in this race. Uh, the DHS, the report on Cop City protesters uh, and how they cribbed Andy Noe's reporting uh, and a whole lot more about the debt ceiling negotiations and how it's all a charade and a scam. It was a ton of fun. The episode is available for paid subscribers or as we like to call you, our paid interns over at insurgentspod.com. You can go there, get access to that episode and every paid episode for just five bucks a month. You help keep this show going. We greatly appreciate your support. 
Uh, without you, we would not be able to do this. So insurgentspod.com, just five bucks a month to get access to that episode and every other bonus episode. You get one extra every week. Yeah, it was a great conversation with Ken. Although I must say, like with Ken continually coming back on here, despite the ban, it almost seems like we're the scam cucks here. We're being made fools of. I think that's right. It's, it's ridiculous. <laughs> but yes, we do. We do love and appreciate all our wonderful paid interns. I hope everyone gets a chance to listen to that episode. And now Jordan's conversation with Ben Terrace, author of The Big Break, will be happening right after this. joined by Ben Terrace, author of the new book, The Big Break, The Gamblers, Party Animals, and True Believers Trying to Win in Washington While America Loses Its Mind. Ben, thank you so much for joining me. How are you? I'm doing great. Thanks so much for having me. Of course, of course. I just finished this book. Uh, I loved it. We'll get to it in a second, but first we have to ask you the question we ask all of our guests, just so we know who we're dealing with and whether or not the interview should even proceed. Ben, are you a gamer? A gamer. Oh, boy. I mean, am I going to answer this wrong? Uh, not really. No, I'm not really a gamer. Have I played games? Sure. Yeah. But I'm not. I wouldn't go so far as to say gamer. Okay. But you have played what I assume in your childhood or maybe college days. What sure. did you play? Really post-college, I got super into Grand Theft Auto for a while. And it was like, <laughs> honestly, it was between college and figuring out what I was going to do. And I became amazing at Grand Theft Auto. And look, was there some cannabis usage? Probably. <laughs> Did I feel like I was in a movie when I was playing it? Probably. Look, I, you know, the, the Washington Post, uh, they, uh, they made drug tests. So this is all hypothetical and probably is. Sure. Uh, but uh, at that point, I think I probably qualified as a gamer. Uh, now, uh, you know, got two little kids and like, I definitely help them out with the games on their tablets. They will for sure be gamers. I'm just not, uh, I'm just not much of one myself. Okay. So you're, you're in retirement, but once a gamer, always a gamer. That's I right. Think. And like, I want to play Zelda, you know, like I just desperately yeah. want to see what everybody is all like, you know, into. <laughs> I just haven't had the time at the moment. I understand. You have another time in part because you just put out this fantastic book i just finished it today uh, i loved it. i love books like this where you do these deep dives kind of it's kind of vignettes on people who maybe many people nationwide don't know who they are but they do have in some instances outsized outsized influence on our politics or our society and in this book you you talk about a few different people there are two I want to start with and kind of juxtapose. This is Matt Schlapp and Leah Hunt Hendricks. I think most listeners know who Matt Schlapp is. He's, you know, he ran CPAC. Uh, he's a big conservative figure. He was close to Trump for years. And we obviously recently saw a lot of scandals emerge about him. I don't think even for a left-leaning show, people know who Leah Hunt Hendricks are. Uh, could you give us an overview of who these people are and kind of how they might mirror each other? Yeah. Well, first, just to, to start, like, to, to kind of give a premise of the book here is, is it is a lot of characters like them. Uh, thank you for reading it and for saying nice things about it. I appreciate it. I, I, I was really looking for characters that could be both 
entertaining, interesting, filled with drama. Like I, I, there's a lot of books that come out about Washington and a lot of them feel the same to me. You know, another book about Trump, another book about a crazy thing that happened and, uh, and you know, a, a, a hurricane was almost nuked or uh, documents were flushed down the toilet, which again are like amazing stories or whatever. But I, I, it's not the kind of story I wanted to write. I wanted to write about the people that actually make Washington work, the people that make Washington not work. The kind of, I don't know, thank you for smoking type characters, right? The like, the weirdos. I mean, at one point, the subtitle was going to be weirdos, wonks, and wannabes, right? Like the people who just are filled with drama and strivers and uh, will let me into their world and show me just how absolutely bizarre and veep-like uh, and dark and f- funny at the same time Washington could be. And so Matt Schlapp obviously fits that bill, right? He's... Um, as you mentioned, uh, you know, the, the Republican kind of kingmaker of sorts. Uh, Leah Hunt Hendricks uh, is not like Matt Schlapp at all, um, but she is an interesting character in that she is kind of a subterranean Washington figure trying to to make it work. And so the book is called The Big Break because Washington went through this big break. That's Donald Trump. That's pre-Donald Trump. It's this kind of chaos we all know by this point. I don't really even need to describe it. Uh, But it's also about people who are trying to put something together after the big break to seek out their own big breaks, right? And Leah Hunt Hendricks is one of these people who really came to political power of sorts in the Trump era. Uh, She is the granddaughter of H.L. Hunt, who was the richest man in the world when he died, an oil tycoon who was this hardcore right-wing populist, um, you know, John Birch society kind of guy. And she is a progressive, hardcore progressive, trying to use her wealth to unwind the kind of project that her grandfather was all about. She was called Occupy's heiress at one point. She was, you know, down at Occupy Wall Street when she was studying solidarity in school. Um, Very smart, very wealthy, but also this kind of person trying to define herself and figure out how to make things work for the country, but for also for herself in this weird new abnormal that is post-Trump Washington. Yeah, I was I was fascinated because you, you and I know our listeners have seen the effects of her philanthropy and her role in the progressive world. She's funded a ton of groups. A lot of people go to her when they want seed funding or early funding for a new political project. I think one of them was More Perfect Union. Mm-hmm. Well, she, I think she was a, a partial contributor contributor to them and uh, i'm a huge fan of their output and i know a lot of our listeners are as well so you've seen her work but unlike schlapp you don't see her she's not out front she's not in the media she's not rushing to defend you know democratic politicians and everything they do and i found their roles similar even though they behave extremely differently uh yeah yeah i mean there's like a kind of uh rainmaker quality to both of them, which is like, if you can be on this person's good side, uh, you could get money, you can get connections, you can get infrastructure. And what makes her so important on the progressive side is, you know, honestly, and you know, this probably better than I, frankly, but, um, you know, there's money to be, to be fundraised and, and grassroots support and all sorts of stuff like that on the left. But there aren't a lot of activists who are also independently super wealthy, who know lots of other unbelievably rich people. And so Leah Hunt Hendricks is that person. And so, yes, there are people who can go out there and they can raise $20 from a a million people and they can help you 
support your organizations or your campaigns, but how many progressives are out there that could call up their friend so-and-so who's a millionaire and get a million dollars donated, you know, like that. And Leah could do that and can do that. And in the Trump years, that she could do that almost easily. I mean, you know, the hashtag resistance spigots were wide open uh, during the Trump years because all you had to do as a lefty basically was say, look, we're, we're not that guy. We, we are against that guy. We are all on the same team and the money would pour in. What I was kind of looking at was her role in the Biden years, the quote unquote post-Trump, even though there is no post-Trump, he's still around very much around, still living in the shadow of Trump in, in Washington. But in this kind of non-Trump dominated Washington, how did she make it work? It was a lot harder for her to raise money. She was trying to define who she was, help define the party. And that's a lot harder to do. Um, it's important to do, but it's really hard. There are two other people. And I think we'll come back to all four and how they all have overlapping and, and similar feelings about their roles in politics. But I, I also want to hear about Robert Strick and Sean McKelvey. And these are two people who, you know, kind of thrust themselves into the spotlight of sorts, more so for Sean through his uh, media maneuvering. Uh, but Robert Strick was somebody who didn't really have a lot of political connections before the Trump years, but kind of faked it till he made it and ended up... <laughs> just as a really interesting character in this book and somebody who I admittedly had never heard of before this. So who, who, who are Robert Strick and Sean McKelvey for people who may not know? Yeah. I mean, I think they're really good examples of, of where, uh, of the book, right. Which is that they are entertaining characters. Like you could, I want this book to be a fun read. I want people who don't care about Washington so much, who don't think about it all the time, aren't like, you know, reading Roll Call and National Journal and Politico. And, and you know, I, I want people like my wife who cares about the country, but does not care about my job, my day job necessarily, to want to read this book and be like, wow, like, I'm not an insider. But now I know the insiders and they're effing nuts. I don't know if I'm allowed to swear on this podcast or not. But you can't. Yeah. They're, they're fucking nuts. Right. And um <laughs> Strick is a great example of somebody that you just, in my opinion, this guy on the page is just, you You fly through it because it's like, what is going on here? He's a, a, a longtime lobbyist who never really made it work, uh, moved out to Oregon, having not made a lot of money, like started a like working on a vineyard and then he owned the vineyard. He tried to run for mayor of a small town, alienated everybody in the small town. They basically ran him out of town. It was like, that somebody described it to me as like a bad dream where people in town are still wandering around being like, did that really happen? Did that, did that dude from out of town move here and just yell at everybody and make everybody uncomfortable and run for mayor and then disappear? He's a guy like that who, when Trump ran for president in 2016, he gets on, you know, some low level volunteer gig um, by basically like, you don't know, representing Trump in Oregon, a state that's never going to go for Trump, but he's, in the mix, right? He starts to know the people in Trump land. And when Trump wins, this guy is all of a sudden sitting pretty. He literally is sitting in Washington, D.C. a couple days after Trump wins when a dog comes and sniffs his crotch and uh, a woman comes after the dog and apologizes. And she's got a New Zealand accent. He thinks it's a British accent, but it's a New Zealand accent. And she's mad because she can't connect her country to President Trump. It turns out in Washington, everybody was prepared for Hillary Clinton to be president. That seemed like the natural thing. And when it wasn't her, 
nobody knew how to do their jobs. Nobody knew how to connect countries with the new president and strict this, you know, cowboy hat wearing, uh, you know, guy who makes in his words, shitty wine um, is sitting there and he tells her, yeah, well, I can do that for you. And she's like, really? And he's like, yeah, I can do that. And he didn't really know if he could, but he could. It turns out all you needed was to know somebody who had Trump's cell phone number. Boom. He connects the president elect of the United States with a country, a big deal country. You know, it's not just flight of the concords. Like it's a lot of, it's a big deal to be connected to, to New Zealand. And when that happens, he's just off and running. He's, he raises more money, I think, or makes more money in, in kind of contracts with like seedy in individuals and, uh, you know, unscrupulous countries and, and probably normal countries, you know, and, and some good ones, I'm sure. Um, and makes more personal cash almost than any other lobbyist in the Trump years. And I meet up with this guy for, for the same reason, which is like he put it together in the Trump years and his story, all that stuff is part of the book because it's incredible material. But I also wanted to know what happened next. It's one thing to be able to make a ton of money when Trump is president because you have a cell phone number and you know, you're know you a hustler like in, in the sense that he could hustle. Um, what happens when it kind of goes slightly back to normal? And so I spend just a ton of time with him out on his farm. It's called Alibi Farm. He's always drinking whiskey and telling stories and trying to get deals with the Belarusians during wartime. It's he's a he's quite a character. Uh, and another name that I know our listeners uh, know of, uh, for better or for worse, this is somebody who really did a great job. Admittedly. Uh, Finding his way into media stories over the past few years, built up a polling operation uh, and ingratiated himself among a lot of Democratic, like influential Democrats and also Sam Bankman Freed. Uh, but in case someone doesn't know, Sean McKelvey uh, plays a big role in your book as well. This guy's got uh, gambling, uh, if you want to say addiction, but he loves to gamble. I don't know if we want to diagnose him, uh, but he ultimately ended up maneuvering his way through Washington up and like all the way up into White House invitations. Uh, who Who is Sean McKelvey, the person? So I was interested in Sean before I knew about the gambling or even knew who Sam Bankman-Fried was, frankly. This is a couple of years back. Um, and what was interesting to me is he seemed like a perfect kind of Washington creature for some of the, the reasons you mentioned. One, he was a, a rising star in the Democratic Party and uh, I kept seeing his name pop up places and he had a real self-promotional streak, could almost be Trump-like in that way and that he would say controversial things and think all press was good press. And, you know, he he was a building a brand, right? And did I like that brand? I don't know, but I certainly couldn't stop seeing it. And I was like, well, this, this guy feels like somebody's either going to make it in Washington or Washington is going to absolutely destroy him. Like he's going to, you know, set himself on fire. And so that was interesting to me. Um, he was uh, a young Democratic pollster, ran a think tank called Data for Progress, uh, was a hardcore lefty uh, in 2018, 2019, hosting, you know, uh, dirtbag left happy hours in Brooklyn and wearing Bernie Sanders hats and Karl Marx shirts and uh, talking about abolish ice and moving the Overton window. And then when Biden became president and it was like all the power was kind of being a, a bit more moderate and a bit more pr pragmatic. Uh, that's what Sean became. He became the guy who basically said, don't say defund the police. Instead of being the guy who said abolish ICE, he took on the opposite role. And that was like a very Washington move. And so I just wanted to see what happened. And 
it turns out like there's a lot going on and I would go to his poker nights and his happy hours, but it was the poker nights that, that I really got the material that I felt like is at the heart of his story in the book, which is his gambling. And it wasn't just betting on cards. He was betting on politics and he wasn't just betting on politics. He was betting on elections and he wasn't just betting on elections. He was betting on elections that he had done polling for. It was like, you know, it's not, people kept calling it like insider trading. I don't think it's quite insider trading. It's not the same thing, you know, that has very legal ramifications, but it certainly felt like, you know, at the very least, like Pete Rose betting on baseball while playing baseball. And in some ways worse because Pete Rose at least maintained that he wasn't betting on his own games. And Sean had a, a you know, a rationale for it. He said it wasn't just because he was a degenerate gambler, which an ex-girlfriend of his told me that she thought he was. Um, he said that it was because it made him a better pollster. If he put money in uh, in a race, he had skin in the game. If he lost, he would not forget that loss and he would think to himself, okay, how can I be better? How can I not make that mistake? That's fine. It's an interesting um, idea. But ultimately, clients uh, you know, aren't going to like it when you're betting against them. And some clients aren't going to like it if you're betting at all. Uh, not to mention the fact that he was encouraging his young staff to bet and it became kind of, you know, a scandal. That was a scandal. And you reveal uh, that he ended up betting the wrong way on a lot of the races in 2022. He was certain that a lot of these Democratic victories were going to be losses. And you see his, uh, you know, fallout from uh, Data for Progress and and the betting scandal and also his association with Sam Bankman-Fried and FTX's collapse. And also at the same time you're writing this, which is really just masterful work by you, because from what I gather, it's incredibly difficult to write a book and work on it for years and also make it relevant when it comes out and newsworthy and timely when it comes out. And you did that because Schlapp also had his own set of scandals. And I think for a few people, if not all of them, there was these comments made to you about their reflection on the past couple of years as throughout your conversations, whether they felt they would do things the same way, whether they felt the relationships that they thought they had were genuine and still intact. What was your observation as you just, I guess, the growth of these people or the changes that these people had gone through? Uh, You seem to tie it all together, but I'm wondering if you could give listeners uh, some perspective from, from your side on what these people went through and how they thought back on these past couple of years. Yeah. I mean, to me, I think one of my big takeaways was just, you know, how personal politics is, um, you know, people think of of Washington, especially old Washington, as a place that's just a game, and everybody goes and they they yell during the day and they get their drinks at night and they laugh about you know the the performance they put on, which is itself gross, obviously. Um, but I think there's less of that in some ways now. Some people are still playing playing games for sure, but a lot of it now is just so personal, and people don't necessarily realize that that. You can be a young, idealistic um, lefty who goes to work for a place like Data for Progress and deeply want to change the world. And the fact that your politics gets wrapped up in gambling and um, a, a leader of the institution that you think that you trust and you think of as almost like a mentor. And then when you're let down by him and you feel like um, you know, you've know you lost yourself a little bit to Washington, like that's heartbreaking and personal and difficult and, and, and dramatic. And I think there's just a lot of those stories in this book. A lot of people who come to Washington with one idea of who they are and what they want to be. And Washington 
especially this post-Trump period where everything is so heightened, just kind of rings them out. Some people can get out of it okay with their relationships intact and with their uh, values intact. But I just spent a lot of time with people who I just feel like were losing themselves in Washington and, and in some cases very quickly. And it wasn't until the end of the year when some of these spells were broken that, that people could actually – I don't know, reflect on that after dramatic conclusions to people's stories. Could people say, yeah, that was bad. On that quickly point, is is this, I mean, Mikkel, we had this almost meteoric rise and now I don't, I don't know what he's up to now. Maybe you do, but it's, it's certainly not the same that it was a year or two ago. Do you, do you think this reflects like a new volatile nature of Washington and politics for people who are trying to make it and make a name for themselves or were these just, you know, bright stars who burnt out the fastest? I think that it's a really hard time right now um, to not burn out in Washington. It's just it's everything is existential and uh, there there are real threats to democracy. Uh, there are real um, stakes here. I mean, you've, you've seen what the Supreme Court has done uh, to a woman's right to choose, for example. Uh, it's not like it's we're not talking about little around the edges things where if one party wins or another party wins, uh, life will be basically the same. Like there are really big stakes here. And I think because of that, um, some people can get lost in that and that can they can burn out. And then other people take advantage of that because they know that everybody is so desperate for answers. If they can act like they provide those answers, it can make them wealthy. It can make them influential. It can get them in the room. And if people are there for the wrong reasons, I think a lot of times you'll, you'll see them burn out. Uh, one of the idealists who I think time has proven right that we haven't talked about yet was Jamarcus Perley. And this is a young man who worked on the Hill, <laughs> filmed himself, I think, smoking a blunt in uh, Feinstein's office. And his concerns that he was trying to raise as he quit in a blaze of glory was that she's not all there, doesn't care about his constitu her constituents, and people know this is happening, but don't care. You know, the past few months especially, we've seen reporting that have really validated his concerns and people didn't listen to him. Maybe it was the medium or how he approached it. But, you know, he certainly wasn't the first person to talk about it. But now it's it's there's a magnifying glass on her and her performance and her cognitive abilities. What is Jamarcus Perley's story after leaving Feinstein? I mean, he seemed disillusioned with the entire city and the in the system. Yeah, it's honestly um, kind of sad. Uh, he, you know, he was a, an idealistic uh guy when he came to Washington, young black guy from Pine Bluff, Arkansas, uh, went to Harvard, Stanford, and Oxford. Brilliant guy. Worked for Feinstein for five years. Um, you know, had big designs on, you know, how to make change, um, you know, from the from the inside and, and, you know, work his way through the system and felt completely disillusioned by it. Uh, like you said, broke into her office and smoked a joint at her desk after taking a bunch of psilocybin mushrooms, I, I'll mention. Um it was a protest that didn't really work out. I mean, it was a complicated one. He was hoping to go viral and then have a bunch of people come and talk to him so he could explain himself. And not that many people did. I was sort of one of very few. Another guy, Pablo Manriquez, deserves credit. He did a, a big interview with him for a, a, a website called Latino Rebels. But um, mainstream media didn't really pick it up at all. And 
last I talked to him was actually just a couple weeks ago. And he was back in, in Pine Bluff working at the middle school that he went to um, and having a tough time down there because, you know, it's poor and, and, and not a lot of resources, he said, were going to the school. He felt like everybody at the school was struggling to educate these kids and give them what they need and, and were feeling kind of left behind. And he said watching what was going on with Feinstein now uh, has been kind of heartbreaking for him. It's it, he, he says that this protest he feels like was one of the best things that, that he ever did, most important things he ever did, and nothing came of it. He called for her to step down or for people to recognize, you know, where she was mentally, among other things, and nothing came of it. And now, he, the last time I talked to him was shortly after AOC, I believe, um, or, or Rokana. There were others who, who made statements about, you know, maybe it's time for somebody new. And he was like, even people in the squad, even Rokana are calling for this and nothing is changing. And so if I can't change anything with the most dramatic thing I've ever done, if people in Congress can't change anything, then who can change things? Who can, who can actually make something happen here? And, you know, that's, that, that, that's a tough thing. He, he's, he's wondering if it was all worth it. it. The only person's life who changed from that moment was his. He now worries, well, that, you know, again, he doesn't regret the video, I don't believe, and it's, it's his story, not mine, but um, he told me that he doesn't regret the video, but he wonders if it will follow him forever and, and, and not affect anyone else. The change point, you talk about a bipartisan police bill in this book that people thought, people who worked on it on the Hill thought actually could pass. And then suddenly a draft leaks to a sheriff's union. And suddenly I think it was Tim Scott withdraws his, his backing of this bill. Do you think, I mean, this is an example of how things even where all the pieces are in place or something like this, people didn't think could pass, could, could make it. Do you think things actually can change or are we just kind of on this path where to go back to your earlier point, everything being existential, the rhetoric is, you know, turned up to 11. Every, everything's hyperbolic. Is that just the system we're going to live in in perpetuity? I know that I've been watching too much of I Think You Should Leave with Tim Robinson when the first thing I think of is I'm worried the baby thinks that people can't change. Uh, <laughs> uh, <laughs> uh I do think <laughs> that people and the baby can change and the people that, that the baby is looking at can change. I think Washington can change and affect change and make change. Uh, you know, one of the, the, the things about the place that I think people get wrong is a lot of people outside of Washington think that nothing ever gets done here because people don't care. All they care about is themselves and their own, um, you know, electoral uh, prospects and their own ability to rise. And there is a lot of that. And that is often what makes things ultimately die. And that might be the case with the police reform bill. But it's also filled with lots and lots and lots and lots of people who care immensely. And that bill, that's what made that story uh, such a a heartbreaker really is that there were so many people who cared both in Tim Scott's office and Cory Booker's office. These were the two senators that were working kind of hardest on it, uh, led by two chiefs of staff, women of color who stayed up late, cried desperately trying to, to get something to happen. And when it didn't happen, both of them were basically like, I, I feel like the, you know, the violence that continues after this, like we could have helped stop that. Like that's really hard to live with. Um, but ultimately, you need people like who don't want to be president necessarily <laughs> um, working on some of these things because it's possible that you start worrying 
uh, yeah, I could pass this bill. It might be good for, you know, a, a little bit of reform, but will it hang around my neck if I run for president? Not blaming all of this on Tim Scott. I wasn't in the room. I don't know. But one of the concerns that the, the people in Booker's office had when I talked to them was, well, we thought he might want to run for president. And when it ultimately leaked and he used that as an excuse to get out of it, it seemed like the kind of machinations that might happen if someone were to run for higher office. And he is running for president right now. And, uh, you know, we have some sort of an update on his virginity or maybe <laughs> his la- lack of virginity now, thanks to your reporting. Uh-huh. <laughs> <laughs> That's true. Uh, I can tell you about uh, it. Thank if you like. for your service. <laughs> I, I want I actually do. What was his reaction? Well, this was a while back when I asked him this question. I profiled him years ago when he was a congressman and he was, you know, in his 40s. Um, but I'd found some clips from his early days as a state representative, I believe, or a town councilman in Charleston, South Carolina, when he was 30 years old and he would go around to schools talking about abstinence and how important it was to save yourself until marriage. And he used his personal story saying, I'm not married and I'm a virgin and it's important to me. And I think it's a virtue that you guys should all, you know, consider basically, you should also be virgins until you get married. And when I met with him as a 40 something year old, he still had never been married and he still today has never been married. And it felt like that's fair game. I don't know. It was really weird because I never like anticipated asking a congressman if he'd like ever been laid before. It just wasn't really on my you know bingo card, but it felt kind of like it fair game. Like once you're a guy who publicly goes around talking about this, I think you can ask about it and he could say, I don't want to talk about it. And his reaction at first was, I don't want to talk about my sex life with Ben Terrace or anybody else. And then very weirdly, he stood up from his desk and said, I have to go potty. And then he left and went to the bathroom. <laughs> Weirdest thing ever. I looked at his communication director, who I remember giving me one of those like Jim Halperin shrugs. Like, I, yeah, I guess he had to go potty. I don't know. It's uh, potty time. Yeah. I mean, <laughs> it's potty. And a guy like, you know, who may or may not have had sex, but definitely did not have kids. Like saying potty seems strange to me. Uh, he came back and basically his response was, "It may." I'd asked him if it was a virtue that he still adhered to. It was an easier way than saying like, have you ever had sex? Um, and he said, maybe not as well as I would have liked. I think people should all have patience, uh, but you know, not everybody does. And I would still go around to schools talking about abstinence, but maybe I wouldn't talk about my own story anymore, which was his sort of like, you know, everyone's talking about how Tim Scott is trying to have it both ways now with Trump, like be with him and against him at the same time. This was sort of like a Schrodinger's uh, like virginity. He was like both a virgin <laughs> and not a virgin at the same time. And he could kind of have it both ways, I think, in that moment. Oh, God, if that isn't the quintessential like DC response to something. <laughs> <laughs> oh, man, uh, Ben, what, what do you want people's takeaway to be from this book? What's something that we haven't talked about that you want them to to leave with? Uh, well, first of all, I, I do want people to enjoy this book, right? There's a lot of, there's a lot of Washington coverage right now that is very serious and it is very, it is, it is disastrous times. I mean, we are like in an apocalypse right now, like the whole city is covered in smog. Uh, like, you know, you just, people are wearing masks outside instead of inside now, like the whole things are, things are bad overall. Um, and, and there's a lot of books that, that do a great job of, letting you know how serious it is. And I think we all know that. And I think that people deserve to laugh their way through it a little bit 
instead of just crying their way through it. And so I want people to read this book and be like, have the experience almost like you had while watching Veep, right? Which was you'd laugh your ass off at these like craven, uh, crazy uh, characters, you know, um, and then he'd also be like, that was kind of fucked up. Like <laughs> this is a bad, if that's, if that were real, that's a bad situation. This is real. This is a real book. And I think people at the end of it will be like, DC is not quite ready for what's next. We need to prepare better as a country, as a, uh, as a capital. There are things that can be done to safeguard democracy and pass better legislation and, and be a better country. Um, and we should probably get on that. But also that was fun. <laughs> it's kind of, it's a tough oh, thing it, to do both. <laughs> And you did it well. It, it was a blast, and I learned a lot along the way. I, I really, I really enjoyed it. I, I just couldn't stop listening to it. Uh, the big break: the gamblers, party animals, and true believers trying to win in Washington while America loses its mind is available now. Ben, where could people get it, and where can they follow you and find more of your work? You can get it wherever fine books are sold, I believe is what people say sometimes on radios and podcasts. Uh, you can find yeah. me uh, on Twitter at, at B Terrace. I spent a year during this book leave not on Twitter, and it was amazing. But now that I have to tell people about this book, you can find me there again. <laughs> ben, thank you so much for joining me. Yeah, of course. Thanks for having me.